Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder, and welcome to the show where we dig deeper to understand what matters most in business. Today, we're going to be laying out an entrepreneur's roadmap, and I'm pleased to welcome Jason Acevedo, who's a partner at Claire Harrison, and he's here to tell us all about it. Jason, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. So, Jason, in the spirit of talking about a roadmap for entrepreneurs, I know you work with the entrepreneurs, early stage companies. I guess it's actually technically startups. Why don't you tell the audience who you're typically working with and, and what you're doing day to day with them, and then we'll kind of yeah. go from there. Yeah, so my practice is divided into representing both startups and investors, but I would say the yeah, majority of my time is spent with um, startup founders. Um, I represent them um from sort of the initial stages, right? A lot of times they come to my door with an idea, but not a company, right? So I will start and advise them from literally what sort of company they need to start up and then what they need to do from there, right? Actually, you know, I'm an attorney, but I also act a lot of times as just sort of a consultant business advisor and help them decide on entity choice, how they should start their initial sort of cap table, who they should look for for funding, things like that. And then I sort of act as a general outside counsel on a go forward basis after that. Yeah. So let, let's walk through it. So they, they come to you with an idea. So in the spirit of Shark Tank, if they were going Shark Tank, uh, the sharks would tell them, no, you're too early. It's, it's just an idea. It's not a business yet. But that's where you can really add a lot of value. So where do we start? I, I imagine it probably starts with you know, formalizing the business, right, and setting up a legal entity. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. That's usually, I mean, it's, it's usually as fundamental as that. You know, they have a choice between, you know, consulting outside counsel or using, you know, one of the online services like LegalZoom, right? And oftentimes they'll get a, a usually a good recommendation from one of their other advisors that, hey, just go talk to an attorney. And that's usually where I step in and I explain to them, hey, it's, I'm glad you called. Let's talk about why you should choose maybe an LLC over a corp or a corporate LLC. And a lot of those times, a lot of those decisions are dictated about what the future of the company is. Is it, is it planning on taking an outside capital anytime soon? Is it more of what we call a, a quote-unquote lifestyle business, which means it's just going to generate its own revenue and may not take in a lot of outside investment. But yeah, that's it's literally, that's, you need a company. You have a great idea, but you need a company for legal reasons and also just to um, start, a, start a business and get proper licensing and proper investment. Yeah, I just want to explore a little bit more, uh, with a little more granularity about the structure, at least out of the box here. Um, I think most people are probably inclined to think LLC is the way to go. Is that fair? And, and why shouldn't they if that's not the case? You know what? I think it goes back and forth, but I think most people are go with the LLC. Obviously, that it's the tax benefit that you get from an LLC. Or, you know, if, they're, if you don't plan on taking in outside capital early on, right? Analysis is a past serenity, so you and whatever other f- founders or members you have will get the benefit of probably the losses that you're going to have as you're starting your company up. Um, the issue with an LLC as you grow is a lot of venture capital, particularly institutional investors, um, do not like to invest in LLCs, again, for tax reasons. Um, so you'll have to face a conversion to a C-Corp eventually. So a lot of times my discussion with clients is, when do you see that funding window coming, right? And if it's a year or two years off, an LLC still is probably a good choice. If it's near term, then a lot of times I push them to a C corp. And I've seen actually a lot more companies make the decision to be just become a C corp um, these days, um, hmm. thinking that they're going to try to fundraise fast. 
Interesting. So I, I know there's probably some difference between where, where you're involved from a legal aspect and we'll call it the business components, but how do entrepreneurs go from that idea stage to bringing something into fruition where there's a product or service that really does look like a business, Jason? I mean, that is, yeah. So yeah, that, that oftentimes I get them when they don't have that either, right? They have an idea and what you'll find and what I usually advise my clients is, right, you, you have me, right? You have an outside legal advisor, but I, I, I encourage my clients to then go find other people in their industry or in their field and, and talk to them. How do they develop it, right? What, what was their next steps, right? A lot of times what you come up with is then is sort of your beta project, right? Whether it's a physical product or software um, and, and that you take to market um, with a small sort of subgroup and you develop your, your business from there. Uh, and a lot of times I'll be, I'll help and in, be involved in sort of like narrow down what I think their target should be. Cause you know, there's a lot of industries that I've, I've seen over the years. Gotcha. All right. So let, let's go with the supposition that we're now at the spot on the roadmap where we have a, a viable product or service that constitutes a business. We're set up with a legal entity. So it all looks good from a wrapper perspective. Um, now it's time to start thinking about hiring, whether it's the, the first hire or planning more strategic hires as we're going forward. Yep. What's, what's that process like from an entrepreneur's lens? Because a lot of times um, you've got friends and family that are probably the, the first inclination. Good idea, bad idea, Jason? <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's a tricky question, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of times you do see that, right? You're like, oh, I have my best friend, right? I actually had a, a client just recently try to bring on his friend as one of the co-founders and they decided not to do it for, for, for various reasons, but it, but it's tricky, right? Because a lot of the discussions you have with early employees um, who are going to be key for growth um, is, is, is there's a lot of governance and ownership concerns around that. So sometimes those are, those are sticky things that having a personal relationship and a business relationship can make it a little more complicated. Now, if, now if you can bridge that gap, that that's great, right? Because there's a familiarity between you and, and that, that other individual, but Oftentimes, what I recommend to my clients is don't necessarily look to them in the first instance. What you're trying to look for, particularly for your early employees, is that employee that's going to be with you for, you know, hopefully five to 10 years or through all the way through to exit. And what value add do they bring? What skill set do they bring that you don't already have and bring to the table? Yeah, a piece of advice that I had uh, heard from an old client of mine a long time ago in a family run business. Uh, he uh, did not let his children involved in the business until they uh, they paid their dues somewhere else, uh, yes. learned and trained on somebody else's dime, got to understand the bigger picture before they just walked into the company. Yeah, and, and I think that's great advice. I think because a lot of times what you have when you, particularly with families, you have a lot of people with the same ideas, right? They've, they've grown up around, they say it's a family business, they've grown up around that business. Or even if it's your friends, they've helped you maybe develop that idea in informal conversations, but they're kind of in that box of yours, right? A lot of times what's best is to get someone that is taking fresh eyes uh, for a fresh look at your business idea and bringing in new perspective. Yeah. And again, probably not within your wheelhouse from the legal lens, but I'd love to get your, your professional opinion, if you will, on the cultural aspects of when these entrepreneurial businesses are starting up and you've got family members in there. And then when they ultimately bring in that, that other hire that doesn't have the same last name, uh, it can be intimidating, I'm told, and uh, it can create you know, potential for a lot of difficulties there. What would be uh, your thoughts or advice that you might have for entrepreneurs as they start to continue to build out that business? I mean, I think it's just right. I, I'm, I'm always a big proponent of when founders hire that, right, your two main things you should be looking for is the skill set they bring, but also your culture fit. Now, I know like a lot of times culture is an overused 
sort of topic or subject, right? With, with particularly in the startup realm, but I but I do think it's important, right? If they don't fit with your sort of overall mission and sort of get along get along, quote unquote, with the rest of the group. Um, it's going to be a troublesome sort of marriage, right? If you will. And a lot of times those, I've seen some bad breakups in my career from those. I, I do think that it's sort of a fundamental fit, even if those employees, those new employees are interviewing, I guess, laterally, right? In terms of their interviewing with people they may be working alongside. I think that's a recommended approach in the startup environment because as, as we both know, right? Um, there's not a lot of employees in a startup and they often have hold many hats, right? And you're often working side by side for long hours. So you really got to be able to get along with that individual stand on the other side of the table for me. Yeah. And it's a chance to get it right, right out of the box. If you're thinking about it intentionally, uh, yeah. Jason, for, for folks who are watching or, or listening and want to learn more about you or get some more advice, uh, how, what, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah. As you can, you can get me at, uh, you can email me directly at, at Jason Acevedo. It's Jay Acevedo at Claire. Dot com. I'm also on um, LinkedIn. You can just under my name, Jason Acevedo. Um, I pop up usually pretty high in the search list under Claire. And then I'm also on Twitter, Jason underscore Acevedo. Great. Thanks for that. Jason, we're going to have to take a quick pause here. I don't want to take you down a rabbit hole and, and give you any kind of time restraints on answering a question. So you sit tight. We're going to pay a few bills here, take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back after this quick pause. Sounds great. Aloha, Joe Silva here with Kakua Technologies. I'm excited to see you on Tuesdays on Morning Coffee for our tech tips. Let's face it, lawyers get a bad rap. I'm Erin Bruschi, host of Legal Breakdown, where we dissect legal topics for the everyday viewer with a mix of interesting guests to talk about current events and hot legal topics. Let's work together to make the law accessible and relevant to everyone. Catch us every week on RVN Television. And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. Today, we're talking about the entrepreneurial roadmap with Jason Acevedo from Claire Harrison. Uh, Jason, be before the, the break, I didn't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I wanted to talk to you uh, to kick off this second segment here about the, the compensation structure in, in these early stage startup type of entities, right? They're, they're generally bootstrapped, right? There's not a lot of free cash or necessarily free cash flow, but we've got to bring in talent. Oftentimes, that requires giving up a chunk of the company. How do we think about that? Yeah, that's it's one of the more difficult conversations I have with my clients, and not not necessarily from the fact that they're unwillingness to give up equity, but how much, right? It, and the, and, the, and there's really no there are some sort of industry guidelines for for certain hires, um, but it's still a very personal, I think, discussion usually at that level, and they're trying to figure out what's going to incentivize them on a go forward basis. But I also always have to talk to my clients about you know they're going to get, you know, diluted down from this point, right? This is their initial grant. There's always additional time to add them on, uh, add additional equity on. But, you know, typically where I advise my clients is to say, you know, how about you give them an initial grant now, right? You, you, you discuss to them that you're getting in early. You have, I'm not, not giving out the too technical matter, but you have a low exercise price on your options. I'm going to give you X percent. 
And as the company grows, we plan on granting you additional equity. But it's but it's a very tricky thing um, to figure out because what you have to advise clients on is this is their first time when they have to really start thinking about their cap table on a go forward basis. And what I mean by that is they oftentimes founders look at the cap table in, as a static, right? Instead of thinking about what's it going to look like a year from now when I go raise capital. Um, so that's where we're really going to go down the rabbit hole of that discussion and really actually some sit down and model it out, even with your first couple employee hires, figuring out how that'll play out over the next six to 12 months. Yeah. And that's a great segue because uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was the capital raise. Inevitably, there's going to be a need to raise some additional capital. Uh, first time out, it's usually friends and family around, right? Yeah, it, it typically is, right? I mean, it's it's usually the the easiest way to raise capital at an early stage because you, you don't have, right? You typically don't have revenue. Your product is usually very beta, right? If 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 even there is a product, it may just be an idea. Um, and and so really, what you're what you're selling is you, right? And your idea, and oftentimes. The best people to sell that to you is friends and family because they're they're investing in you, right? They they not even really investing in the idea as much as they they believe in you, they want to support you, and they're willing to to help fund you. And also, to be honest with you, it's also a good way to learn how to pitch and sell an investment um, in, in sort of less, um, for lack of a better word, harsh environment than when you start talking to you know professional angels and VCs. Yeah. So when you talk about friends and family around, you hit it right in the head, obviously. People are, are buying into you, the entrepreneur, because there's not much else to, to grasp onto there. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times, well, yeah, most times these, these friends and family members are not sophisticated investors, right? They're not typically doing these kinds of private investments. Um, and they may have an idea that they're going to quadruple their money next Tuesday, if you know what I mean. Where, where, yes. where, what, what's the advice for entrepreneurs in setting proper expectations for these friends and family so that they're there for the long haul and still talk to them at the Thanksgiving dinner table? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question because yeah, that's the one com- like that's a, the question I get from my founders most is like, what? How do I set expectations? Right? Because you're right, most of them think. Um, I'll, you know, I'll maybe give him, you know, 25 grand or 50 grand. And I mean, if I don't like the investment, I can ask him for the money back in, you know, six to 12 months. So it's, it's really a discussion, um, with the founder. Oftentimes I'll give them sort of talking points, um, and say, this is how you should discuss it with your friends and family or your angels that this is a, you know, completely illiquid investment. Um, we hope to quadruple your money. That is the goal. Um, but if that is the result, right, that's not a near-term result, right? That's a that's a growth result. It's going to take a few years to get there. And if they and I and I, I quite frankly tell a lot of my founders, if you're getting a lot of the hesitance from a certain best, particularly friends and family, about the liquidity issue, then you, you should probably consider not taking that capital if you have other sources for to, to fill that hole, only because it's going to cause you more headaches than it oftentimes is worth. Um, not only at the business level, but also obviously at your personal relationship level. Yeah, they'll be the ones waiting for you in the parking lot every week asking you how that uh, project's coming along. Uh, Correct. And oftentimes, yes, or calling every Friday, seeing how the business is developing. There you go. Uh, let, let's move to uh, the inevitable need for, hopefully the inevitable need for institutional money. Uh, that's where you've got the smart money, the sophisticated investors that are involved. And yeah. the pitch looks a lot different than what you would do for friends and family much different right now you are in the realm of you know your 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 quote-unquote pitch deck right so you better have in the pitch deck as the fundamentals of right your your leadership team right your your fundamental business plan your product your market 
um, your target market that it's a really professional package. Um, and a lot of times, uh, you know, myself along with other business advisors to a founder will all sort of collaborate and create this sort of pitch package for, for investors or sorry, for founders to go out to investors on. Um, and it, it's, it's a process that I think is off is oftentimes really good for, for founders, not only because they need this sort of professional face for, for getting investors, but it helps them actually hone their own ideas about the business oftentimes where in the beginning they might be running in, in several different directions. Yeah, and that's where you start to get into uh, kind of real-world valuation matters because you know, yeah. this, is, this is now serious time. And one of the fundamental things that investors look for is what's the future look like? And there's, there's usually a disconnect between the entrepreneur vision, which in, in my world we refer to as the hockey stick forecast, and reality. Yes. Uh, how are you coaching entrepreneurs in putting together that forward-looking business plan? It's funny that you, it's funny a question you ask that, right? Because you, you oftentimes even investors know and the founders know that the hockey stick isn't necessarily reality. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's still sort of, you're trying to put an optimistic face and sort of the upside face on what your company is potentially capable of achieving, right? Because we all know it has happened in the past, right? So you got to find a balance there of, of showing that there's this has a, a potential for high multiple growth, right? Um, so, but also with some realism, right? On, you know, you know, there may be some hiccups along the road, right? And, and a lot of times what I'll tell my founders is in their pitch decks is let's create a range, right? Instead of like just the 100% upside, this is what we're going to do um, guaranteed, right? Let's think about this is, you know, optimal scenario, midline scenario. And this is what happens if maybe not just the product gets some road bumps or the market gets some road bumps. We may need some additional capital. We may need to readjust. Investors, I think, really appreciate that because they understand that that is, you know, the the case with overwhelming majority of their companies that a lot of them change tracks, um, you know, down the road, six months down the road, even a year down the road. Yep. Jason, for anybody who's watching or listening and want to learn more or work with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, the best way to probably get in touch with me is, is through email. It's jacevedo at clareharrison.com. Or else you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, Jason Acevedo, um, Claire Harrison. And then I'm also on Twitter um, at j, uh, or sorry, at, at Jason underscore Acevedo. Sounds good. Thank you. So, Jason, I, I know um, that entrepreneurs right out of the box and even when they're getting you know, their first round of institutional money aren't necessarily thinking about the exit. Uh, but a lot of what I hear and, and read um, today says that entrepreneurs should be thinking with the end in mind and always be mindful of an exit plan. What's your counsel on that? Yeah, well, it's funny. So I do think they think about the exit, but they think about the the, the dream exit, right? Not oftentimes how to get to the exit. Um, but, but, but so once I, once we sort of come down to reality and they, they are sort of focused on the business and growing and knowing that they'll get to their, their, their goal as an exit, right? A lot of times that is where real cap table planning comes in and where we really start to talk about how valuation matters, right? And, that, and not to, to backtrack to where we were, but when you're talking about institutional money, that's the first real time you start talking about valuing the company. And that's the first time I usually will try to really imprint upon my clients that, okay, we need to not just figure out what your company is worth today, how much you're giving up for this investment, but how that's going to play out, right? How much more money are you going to need to get to an exit? Um, what other value points do you think you're going to end up at at each of those fundraising points? Because that ultimately leads to 
what the cap table looks like in an exit. And ultimately, you know, obviously the found, but the founder um, is expected to to get in as, as a return for all his work from from day one through to exit. Yeah, and that, that makes me think of an interesting question here because you, you hear it about on Shark Tank a lot. But should should the founder slash entrepreneur be thinking about a salary along the way, or should they just be thinking, I'm going to have to eat cereal and cat food, and uh, I'll, I'll get it at the end. I would love to say they should think about salary. Uh, I get some founders who, the moment they fundraise, want to at least bump it up to what they consider market. I always advise against it. It's just it where you want you want to show investors and also yourself. I think that you're banking on yourself, right? So I always say preserve equity, right, over worrying about getting the upfront cash. You didn't get into this in most cases to get the salary, right? You you either one wanted to get a big return, but more, more oftentimes it's not even the big return, right? It's they really believe in the idea that they have and they think they can run a successful business. So the salary should be tertiary to that, right? And, and I would say in over, you know, overwhelming majority, maybe 70% of my clients, that is the goal, right? They, they don't focus on salary. It's it's the smaller 30% that I that I have a lot of long conversations with and, and sort of counsel them on, on that they should be focused on equity preservation, not, not um, you know, near-term salary. Yep. So as the entrepreneur continues down this roadmap here um, on their journey, the hope is, of course, everything works out just well, great, fantastic. Yeah. The product or service goes well. We have a, uh, that fairy tale exit that we're talking about. But it, it doesn't usually go that way, right? There's usually road bumps along the way, uh, co-founders that suddenly disagree with the strategic direction. Yes. How, how are you protecting entrepreneurs from these inevitable downsides, even in the case of you know, the business divorce, where maybe there's a, a co-founder partner that uh, now they can't get along with? Yeah, it's, it's a, another great question, right? That, that's a question that actually goes all the way back to the very first topic we, we, we address, right, which is business advice on entity formation, right? And sort of what your governance documents look like at that time. And that's, it's actually a really tough discussion to, for particularly if you have two co-founders to get them to focus on because they are at that point in time, best friends, right? And they want, they, they, they think anything's ever going to go wrong, right? And so what I haven't had the discussion with is, well, yeah, I, that's where we think things are going to head. And I, I, everyone hopes that that's the case. And it doesn't seem like there's any reason why it shouldn't from this day forward. Um, but we need to plan for that, that eventual exit. Because if you have, if one of you decides that this doesn't work for whatever reason, maybe it's not even a business reason. Maybe there's a personal reason why we need mechanics in place that you agree upon now that will kick in um, down the down the road. And and that same sort of iteration comes up when um, investors are willing to raise uh, put in capital. A lot of times, founders won't really focus on the governance terms that investors are looking for. And I'll have to really push my clients to look at them because they will matter if things go sideways, right? No one hopes, it, no one wants things to go sideways, but if they do, all of a sudden, what all that stuff says in the legal documents that no one wants to pay attention to, that all of a sudden becomes the most important thing in, uh, on the table. Yeah. Jason, I want to talk to you uh, in a little bit of time here that we have left um, about the, the role of the founder and entrepreneur uh, early days and even going forward. Uh, in, in terms of should they be the chief evangelist officer, in other words, the face of the company, and, and are they prepared to lead as the, the chief executive officer, or are they more comfortable in, we'll call it the technical world of whatever their product or service is? What, what should entrepreneurs be thinking about in terms of their role? I mean, I think the, in the, in the, at the outset, right, they need to 
wear all those hats, right? They're the CEO, they're the CTO, they are inside if there's co-founders, maybe they split those roles up, but then they're all they're they're their, you know, their their loudest um um chief evangelist as you as you use, right? They they're the ones that are selling this company to everyone else. They're the ones that have to make people believe. Then I think that morphs over time, right? I think as a company grows, oftentimes what you'll see is, you know, this someone, if it's if there's multiple founders, someone emerges as sort of the CEO. Sometimes that you often have a CFO or a CTO, right? They they kind of like fall into roles, and um, and, and that sort of usually happens naturally, right? I don't often a lot of see a lot of tension when you have multiple founders of them kind of like finding where their comfort zones is. Um, I think where you see some tension sometimes is often when you know usually second or third institutional round. Um, where the institution maybe want, wants to bring in what they call a quote, quote, professional CEO. Um, and oftentimes the founders feel like they're being replaced. But oftentimes what it, the, the idea is what you just need someone to run the business while you can focus on product or, um, yeah, run, you know, again, chief evangelizing the business, right? And those conversations can be difficult, but I think once the founder gets comfortable with that, they, you oftentimes realize that it's actually for the best. Yep. Jason, we've got about two minutes to go here, so I want to give you the last word on... Uh, however you choose to go with it, but blind spots that entrepreneurs should be aware of or some of your best advice that you would share with an entrepreneur if you met them on the elevator on the way up to the office today? My best advice, right, and this is not to self-promote at all, is to surround yourself with advisors early, right? It's not just legal, business, industry. Anyone that you can think of that's willing to talk to you when you're starting your business, talk to them, right? Even if it's a 15-minute coffee conversation, right? Or, you know, if they want to jump on and be on your board of advisors, it's even better, right? The more information you can gather, right? Um, the better, right? Because what you probably are an expert in is your business, right? Or your product, which you've spent, you know, the last maybe five to 10 years of your life trying to develop. Maybe it was only six months, it's regardless. But you don't have, you haven't been focusing on all the other nuts and bolts, if you will, maybe the less sexy stuff that needs to go into creating a successful business. So the more, the more you get those advisors on, on, on your side, um, the better. And you'd be surprised at how many are willing to just, including myself, just offer their advice. I mean, we, you know, I do this for a living, but I also love the ecosystem, right? And I love to see founders succeed. So I love spending time and just talking to them and counseling them along the way and helping them make decisions. Yeah, that's great advice. You get get the perspective and the lens of other folks who have been there and done that, and uh, you learn from their mistakes and, and get some objective guidance. Uh, good Correct. stuff. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It goes fast here. <laughs> no problem. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. Today, we've been talking with Jason Acevedo, who's a partner at Claire Harrison. Definitely check him out and the law firm. And uh, my name is Dave Bookbinder. And if you believe that people are an organization's most valuable asset, you may enjoy my books, the New ROI series. Uh, you can find them everywhere the books are sold. You can also check it out at newroi.com. That's where you can reach me as well. I'm always happy to have a conversation. Thank you again for watching and listening to the show. Can't do it without you. Please hit the subscribe button, write a review, tell a friend, all that good stuff. Anyway, that's all we have for today, folks. You take care. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers. 